Welcome back to the Fourth Way Podcast. In this episode, I had the opportunity to interview Ari Spivey of Failed Kingdoms. We cover a lot of ground, but there are two main discussions that I want to key you into before you listen. First, we discussed the idea of how we ground nonviolence and anarchism, which for us as Christians is extremely important. Is our belief grounded in the idea that we are nonviolent and free because we are made in the image of God and God is by nature nonviolent and free? Or is our belief in nonviolence and anarchism grounded in the idea that God can decree whatever he wants and he simply decreed that, for whatever reason, we ought to be nonviolent for the moment and ought to have no king but Christ? How one answers this question has huge bearings um, on, on other doctrines that will come into play. The second conversation piece, I think, which is particularly important, is our discussion on race and politics. Many black activists declare that it is a privileged arrogance which would call someone to not engage in politics. Blacks, they argue, must engage in politics because their very lives and freedom depend on changing and creating just legislation. How does Ari, as a black man, respond to this? I think he provided a powerful analogy in that he argues that blacks are really just seeking to take the same gun which has oppressed them and to use that weapon for themselves. Now, perhaps one thinks that's great, but we know where power eventually ends up taking people, and this gun is a weapon that nobody should wield. Ari points out that the irony of this is that many blacks, especially those who adhere to CRT, are arguing that there's a huge systemic injustice and that whites don't see their own privilege and biases. Yet these same advocates are arguing that we need to engage in the system, a system in which the vast majority of the voting populace are these blind, racist, and self-interested white people? How does advocating a participation in such a system hold any moral coherence, let alone any logical coherence? It doesn't, which is part of the reason that Ari and I are anarchists and are having this discussion. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Ari Spivey of Failed Kingdoms. But just to start off with, um, I would love for you to kind of just maybe give a, a brief introduction as to uh, who you are and what you do and what got you on the the path to Christian anarchism. Like, what was the catalyst? What uh, Was there an event or somebody influential? Mm. Well, my, my name is Ari. Um, I, I'm pretty much the only person. I mean, it was more than one person at one point, but, um, I'm a part of a, I get, don't call it a group. I'm fell kingdoms pretty much. Um, I didn't know exactly how to say it, but, um, yeah, I, I rap, I produce, I sing a little bit, not that, not that well, but I don't like necessarily hearing people saying my own stuff. So I do the best I can. And, um, I've been, I've been making music virtually my whole life. Um, I love, I love every, every form of music, not just hip hop, uh, pop, R and B, whatever you name it, gospel. So, um, 
I've just always loved music and uh, I've always been, I've always grown up in, in a, in a culture and in a, in an atmosphere and environment where music has always been a really important feature of our lot of, of day-to-day life. So I just naturally, you know, became a musician pretty much. Um, I'm a, I'm 27. Uh, just, just, uh, I'll be 28 this year, I believe. Um, I have a one-year-old daughter. Her name's Camila, and I'm married to my beautiful wife, Maria. Uh, next year will be six years of marriage. Um, that's pretty much all I, I think people would need to know about me. I'm a Christian, obviously. Um, and specifically in regards, regards to anarchism, Christian anarchism, that is, um, I've always been skeptical of political authority, especially you know, um, where I came from and where I come from. Um, my family has always raised me to be the type of person that looked and viewed what the government could potentially do to me if it wanted to as in a, in a not so positive light. And so I have, I've naturally been a person that was skeptical of government. And I think that just naturally progressed into where I am now. Um, at one point, I was a, I guess, I guess you could say I was a conservative. Um, I was reading people like Thomas Sowell, um, Walter E. Williams, Jason Riley, uh, even looking, uh, even listening to, you know, conservative political pundits like Ben Shapiro, Stephen Crowder. I still listen to Stephen Crowder a lot. Don't agree with a lot of the stuff that he says because he's a statist, but uh, he's relatively still enjoyable to watch and entertaining. Um, after a while, just listening to really read, really reading Walter E. Williams, um, I was introduced to something called libertarianism and never heard about it, never heard about it before. I had always grown up being a Democrat, right? So like the idea of big government was something that was always assumed where I, where I came from. Um, not really for me. It was, I really didn't see the use of government for the majority, for the majority of the, of, of the time. And so as I began to think about what government was needed for, I just naturally began to like X off uh, certain things that it was, you know, that it was meant to, that it was meant to do. And that landed me into somewhere like a minarchist, you know, basically you just need courts, you need maybe law enforcement and that's it. That's pretty much it, you know? And after that, I just started diving, just delving into more and more libertarian thought. I started reading Hayek. I started reading, uh, Rothbard, Murray Rothbard was one of the people that really sold me on anarchism. So I read his book. Well, it's kind of like a, it's not really a book. It's kind of like a short essay and it's called, um, what is it called? It's been so long. Uh, I think it's, uh, is it no treason? No, it's not no treason. It's, um, Oh wait, you're talking about Rothbard. Yeah. Rothbard. uh, Okay. Um, yeah, I, I read it. I'll, I'll look it up really quickly. Yeah. I keep, I forget what it's called. It's like, man economy and state or something like that 
I can't remember. But either way, um, but I read that and that pretty much sold me on anarchism um, as a as a political philosophy. But. Uh, and, you know, after that, it just sort of I just started reading more and more people um, who are just in the anarchist, you know, anarchist group or anarchist philosophy. Um, a lot of people from the Mises, from the Mises, um, I guess, from the Mises uh, side of political theory. I started reading a lot of them. And um, after a while, I just became I just became convinced that um, there was no there's really no need for political authority at all. We can pretty much, uh, I guess, uh, duplicate or replace the quote unquote uh, necessary aspects of government with private institutions and private organizations. So that's kind of where I was um, specifically with um, anarchism and specifically when it comes to Christian anarchism. Um, I became an anarchist way before I became a pacifist. So, uh, but when I became a pacifist, that just seemed like the logical anarchism just sort of seemed like the logical conclusion of pacifism. So it was just sort of like, a. I never planned on it. Right. I know I wasn't, I wasn't intending to, uh, look at a Christian, look at some kind of Christian way to justify anarchism. I just was reading, I was just reading, you know, the words, the words of Christ. And it seems like he's a pacifist, you know, nonviolent, a nonviolent, you know, he has a nonviolent philosophy or way of living. And that naturally made me become a pacifist. And just looking at the logical, looking at the, uh, the, the logical uh, conclusion of pacifism, just even furthermore submitted my anarchism. So it was, you were right, uh, the, uh, the book was called uh, Man, Economy, and State. Yes. Um, I, I read Anatomy of the State. I didn't, that's the only one I've read by, uh, oh. by Rothbard. But mm. yeah, that, that, was, that was good and probably representative of his work. Mm. Um, all right, so I want to kind of uh, hone in on that because I'm, so pacifism was, was a really big issue for me too. Like where mm -hmm. um, anarchism wasn't even on the table. That's not even something I thought about. But, mm -hmm. um, you know, the 2016 election kind of threw me for a spin and with morality and everything, I just, I started questioning a lot of things. But like you said, coming to pacifism, it's like, well, the, the logical outworking of that is if I can't bear the sword, then, you know, that's going to be a big problem bearing the sword for the state. Mm -hmm. um, so, but... You know, as you dig into pacifism, especially, you you kind of get two camps of people, and so I'm gonna be I'm gonna try to talk with some other people who who take a very um, maybe literal uh, I don't know what what word they would prefer me to use, but literal interpretation of the Bible where it's you know inerrant and uh, f face value. Mm -hmm. Um, my impression of, of reading your stuff and hearing you talk, I've heard you, uh, I just watched one of your, uh, interviews with, uh, I think it's Brad Jersek. Yeah. Um, so my impression of you is that, uh, you take a, and give me the word that you want me to use, maybe a little bit more of a loose interpretation of the Bible 
Um, uh, you know, I, I, I guess so. I mean, cause I'm, I'm, I'm certainly not an inerrantist. Um, so, you know, um, I don't, yeah. I don't necessarily prefer, I don't necessarily prefer even, you know, the vocabulary of me being an errantist, you know, a N errantist. But, um, I, th- I think I'm just, I'm sort of more of a, the text is alive, so, so to speak. Um, I'm not trying to make it, I'm not trying to make it all fit, you know, and I can clearly see when I read the text that there's problems, at least how I read it. Um, there's inconsistencies, maybe contradictions. And that doesn't bother me. It just makes me look at the scriptures as a as a book of wisdom and not necessarily a rule book for life. So I look at the text like, hey, the scripture says this, but then the scripture also says this. And I I don't I don't necessarily conclude from that that, well, we we can't know anything, you know. I'm more of a person who says, okay, what is God trying to get us to say? Or what is God trying to get us to conclude from this? And I think it's an invite to question, to live, to wrestle with, to wrestle with this tradition that, you know, the, the Christian tradition and the Hebrew, the, you know, the Hebrew tradition. And that's how I see the scriptures. So there, I, I've I've seen so many times where you know, can, I guess evangelicals or conservative Christians, when I bring up the fact that I I don't really necessarily have a problem with the idea that Paul may have said this, but I don't necessarily agree with it, they bring up then okay, well if Paul could plus you know could potentially be wrong here, then how do you know you know how like what's the I guess what's the the interpretative framework that you use to I guess exegete. The, you know, to pull truth from the text, and where I am is, I don't, I, I don't really know. Effect <laughs> officially, I don't really know how to deal with that other than the way that I deal with it now, and I don't. And it's almost like the way that they, the way that people tend to say it is, you either have inerrancy and you have one hundred percent trust in the text, or you can't trust anything. You can't trust anything about what the text says at all if you. Um, if you give up the idea that the scriptures are always true in what it says and the doctrines that it speak, but even if that even if that were, was a I guess a um, legitimate problem posed to the to the scriptures, the point is is that and this and this is how why and this is why I guess I'm still a Christian. I still see value in the Christian tradition. I still have what I believe to have been mystical experiences with Jesus. Sometimes I think it, I'm, I'm, I conclude that it's the God of the Bible to a certain extent, because every time I've ever had a mystical experience it's always been through, um, I guess through Christian, through Christian practices. I don't, I don't necessarily know if that's who, if that's actually Jesus, but I just conclude that that it is because of basically because I was, because of the situation that I'm in. But even then it's like, I do believe that there, there's something to this, 
there's something to this tradition. There's something to this religion. There's something to this Jesus, and there's something to these texts. And that is what's making me stay. And so with that, I have to learn how to deal with the text. I just I, I refuse to just throw it away. I have to deal with it in some way, shape, or form. And so for me, I guess I would, I guess you could refer to me as someone who who is a fallibilist in terms of scripture. But even then, um I think I'm more in line with I'm more in line with first with uh second temple Jewish ways of thinking about the text because in second temple well in a lot of the times in second temple Judaism you don't necessarily get this idea of the historical grammatical reading of the text being the utmost important thing about reading the text that's never what it was it was always hey that may be an important thing to you know to parse out but fundamentally that's not the thing that's most important the thing that is most important is wrestling with the text and doing the best that you possibly can without forsaking your own experiences without forsaking your own con- um uh, your own context without forsaking your own environment and and almost and almost becoming like emptying emptying yourself out just to read the text and this is what it is the point is i don't think that i don't think that that's even possible to begin with i i think that's I think that's requiring you to completely just uh, it's requiring you to not be you anymore in order to read the text. And I just don't think that that's even remotely plausible. And so for me, I read the text and I embrace it for what it is. And I do the best that I can to interpret and to read it within my own context, within my own environment, within my own upbringing and within my own tradition. And obviously, the the historical grammatical reading of the text is very important. Is very important, but just even in when I read and when I look at history, even in the first century where the New Testament arises from, it even appears to me that that is not the most important thing about the text. They, in a, in a lot of ways, many Jews were okay with the idea that okay, well, you know, scriptures uh, this this prophet says this and this prophet says that. And they almost look at that as, okay, well, okay, we see that we recognize it, but the scripture is fundamentally, I guess, Peter, Peter ends. He says, I forget what he said. It's cryptic. Scripture is fundamentally cryptic. So it's not necessarily what you see on the, I guess on the top and on the front of the text, you got to, the the truth the real truth you got to dive deeper into it so you always have to look underneath and it's skin deep well it's not skin deep it's more than skin deep and so that's kind of how i that's kind of how i read the text now at least that's where i am now yeah and i know that that uh that sounds wishy-washy to a lot of people who hold to yeah. inerrancy but you know i i think it's uh it's not really fair because inerrantists do do the exact same thing, right? So, like, right. you know, take for example, reading slavery in the Old Testament. Well, you see, it doesn't mean that God approves of slavery. He's, 
using progressive revelation and whatnot. So they take things that are there at face value, or if you're an old earth creationist, you know, you take Genesis one and, Mm -hmm. um, you recognize that, um, there's a, there's a way, there are multiple ways to interpret different things. So I think inerrantists do the the same sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, so, um, I guess one of the one of the big hangups I think for for a lot of people or one of the kind of the the uh, a fork in the road that you have to come to is you have to decide in regards to nonviolence you have to say okay either I'm nonviolent because Jesus told me to God told me to and therefore I need to do that he decreed it or mm-hmm. God is by nature a loving God and to love means to not do violence to somebody. Um, Mm -hmm. So you, you take the second approach, right? You take God is by nature, a loving God, which means he doesn't do violence. Correct. Yeah. That would, that would, that is literally my, my position. Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. Which, yeah. So, so for, you know, if you're going to go that route, then anarchism makes a hundred percent sense. Whereas yeah. if, if you, uh, if you say that, well, God can decree to not use the sword, but then he can give the government the sword and those sorts of things. Yeah. Um, you know, you can kind of wiggle your way, um, out of that one. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right. So if, if you view God's character as being intrinsically loving and good and, and being loving and good means nonviolent, um, you know, then, then you would say that old Testament depictions of violence doesn't at all represent who God is. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, that would be correct. Yeah. Okay. So sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. No, 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 go for it. Okay. Well, specifically with, with, um, with old Testament violence, um, the thing, the thing about it is that one, I don't even think a lot of it is even historically, historically situated. Um, specific, uh, for instance, like the the Great Flood in the Book of Genesis. Obviously, I mean, I do believe that there is um, there was a Great Flood in like five thousand BC. I know that for I, I know that for a fact. That's that's scientifically provable. I know that. However, that's a different that's different mean that's a different means of looking at uh, history rather than looking at what the text says. And so for me, the idea of the idea that God, I, I guess, basically killed the entire the entire human race and just kept a couple people alive. Um, one of the moral objections that I have to that is the idea that God drowned babies. I mean, because it's a global flood. I mean, or, or it's it's a you may whether whether or not you take a glo- you take a global view of it or you take a you take a, a local flood view. Either way, the point is God killed babies. And that is extremely moral, morally problematic to me. And if I had to believe that, I wouldn't be a Christian. And so I have moral objections to a lot of the stuff that Yahweh is said to have done. And then on top of that, I find that even the accounts that are brought forth are historically suspect to a certain degree. So I don't even think that I necessarily have to take a historical literalist view just even off of the scholarship that we have right now and off of the um and I guess off of the 
um, off of the archaeological evidence for these particular instances of God being violent in the scriptures. So for me, one, I have moral objections to it. And then two, I don't necessarily think that I have to take that just even reading the just even reading the text for for what it is i don't even necessarily think that i have to take that those particular instances are literal due to the fact that scholarship and and archaeology sort of uh, push pushes back on that conservative fundamentalist um interpretation of those texts so for me uh any instance, I, I would just say, I would say it straight up. Any instance of Yahweh doing any sort, doing any sort of violence, I automatically take that as either it's hyperbole, meaning that he just he didn't do it. Two, the Israelites are dealing with something that perhaps actually happened, like a great flood, because I really do believe that there was a great flood. And that is, that's just something that was passed down through oral tradition. And it was, I guess, the way in which that the Israelites felt that they had to interpret the text, well, that they had, the, that they had to interpret this historical event. They felt as if they had to interpret that as God punishing the human race. And I just will fundamentally take issue with the idea that Yahweh actually did it. I don't necessarily disagree with the idea that there was a flood. I disagree with the idea that with the attribution from the Israelites that Yahweh did it. And even in terms of um, like the Canaanite, gen the Canaanite genocide, I have no problem with, well, historically, I don't think there's actually much evidence that it actually happened. But even if there was evidence that it actually happened, I don't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't just, you know, right off say, okay, Yahweh told them to do it. I would think, hey, they falsely believed that Yahweh told them to do it because fundamentally I don't think God is like that. So if I am if I am existing in the Christian tradition, and I do have these biases, like I have these biases about who God is and what God does and what God won't do, either way, I still have to interpret I have to interpret the text with those I get not even biases. They're more hermeneutical, hermeneutical, um, I guess, um, foundations. So one of the, one of the ways that is one of my, uh, interpretational frameworks is that God is an ultimately nonviolent and he, he doesn't, he doesn't kill, he doesn't destroy. And with that, I take that and I read the text and I see that the Israelites are saying that Yahweh actually did these things. And I have to conclude that, yo, I know for a fact that I know the, I know for a fact that God isn't like this. So they must have been mistaken in some way. I don't know. I don't necessarily know how to harmonize it to make it, to make it make sense with a, with a, I guess with an um, nonviolent God, but either way, I just know for a fact that Yahweh didn't say this or Yahweh didn't command this. Well, and so you take that, uh, to like the greatest extent that you can, correct? Yes. Like you, you uh, take that to universalism. Yes, absolutely. And you know, the thing about universalism is that I just don't see how, um, because, you know, I'm involved in a lot of anarchist, pacifist kind of groups, and there's a lot of pacifists in these groups, but I don't see how they don't understand that pacifism, at least it seems to me, logically follows to universalism 
Because if you have this idea that God is, well, obviously you have this idea where pacifists will say, well, God commanded us to be nonviolent, but that doesn't necessarily, that doesn't necessitate the idea that God must be nonviolent, you know, which I just don't think, I don't think makes sense for what reason. But even if you are a pacifist and you take my, and you take my position that God just doesn't command those kinds of things, um, I don't see how you can conclude that God isn't in the business of reconciling the entirety of creation to himself. Because if you're going to say, I, I guess my fun, I guess my fundamental position is this, whether it's eternal conscious torment or whether it's annihilationism, which is basically the idea that God, um, every, that everything is inherently, well, every rational spirit is inherently, um, is inherently mortal and it's only through it's only through God's grace, infusion of grace, of immor- immortality. That's the only way in which you can receive salvation. And just by de- just by nature, everything else is mortal. And so, if you have not received God's grace, then eventually you'll be annihilated. You'll be destroyed. Ultimately destroyed. But the point is, is for me, even if you take a kind of passive approach to you know a passive approach to damnation you still have this idea that god ultimately caused it because god ultimately created god is ultimately responsible for everything that comes that comes about in in creation i don't see how you can't i don't see how you can conclude that god is i guess that god is ultimately good and that God is ultimately nonviolent and that God is ultimately peaceful if you believe that God allows for or actually positively i guess does the uh does um does the destroy does the destroying or facilitates the idea of people being consciously tormented forever i don't see how you can get past that and so for me the only way that pacifism works, in my opinion, is that God ultimately reconciles everything to himself. That's the only way that I can that I can perceive of God not ultimately being responsible for the harm done to creation is if he can ultimately save it and, and reconcile it and and renew all of it. So that's the only way that I can see pacifism actually working and it actually makes a bit of sense, you know? And so even with even with even with pacifism, I was just talking to I don't know yeah you know Craig you interviewed you interviewed Craig from the Bad Roman we were just talking about this on the phone a couple no it was like a maybe like a couple of weeks ago maybe a month ago and we were talking about the idea that look if God is ultimately nonviolent if God is ultimately loving if God is ultimately um this is ultimately peace how do you go from that to God destroys some people or God facilitates, ultimately facilitates the ultimate harm of some of his loved ones. I don't see how, I don't see how that, I don't see how that works. And I don't see how that actually makes sense. And so the only way that I can make sense of Christianity and where I am is to say that if God is nonviolent, God ultimately heals 
and uh, I guess renews the entirety of creation. And he undoes the harm that we ourselves have perpetuated against each other and to ourselves. And that's, and the only way, and the reason that I say that is because God ultimately caused everything. God, there, God didn't have, um, I guess, God wasn't pressured by anything outside of himself to create, to, in, in, to create to begin with. And so whatever ultimate harm that befalls any of his creation, I think God is ultimately responsible for it. And because God doesn't perpetuate harm and he doesn't cause harm, God can't ultimately cause, be the cause of any person's annihilation or any person's eternal damnation. So I think that's the only logical conclusion is universalism. Yeah, I think the the hard part um, about about taking the decree version of nonviolence is that um, you know if you think well God just decreed for us to be nonviolent at this point, then what you're you're saying is um, the nonviolent enemy love of Jesus doesn't really show us what God is like. It just shows us uh, a tool that He's willing to implement for a for a certain period of time. Um, and so it divorces uh, enemy love and and nonviolence from the character of God, and that's that's a hard pill to, to swallow uh, for me. Uh, and it seems, it seems, I mean, even that, even with that, because it's like, okay, well, if if enemy love entails the idea that you don't kill your, <laughs> you don't, you don't kill people, um, at, at least like f- at at the fundamental part, let's just say. Enemy love is don't kill, don't kill your neighbor, don't kill your enemy. Um, I don't see how that, I don't see how that works if you have the idea specifically in the Old Testament and not only in the Old Testament, but even when it comes to a lot of pacifists like um, Greg Boyd, I love Greg Boyd, Greg Boyd, but he even embraces the idea of annihilation. So it's like, well, how is it that us for us killing killing our neighbor is a sign of hatred is a sign of hate is a sign of um is a sign of um i guess antichrist sentiment but when god does it then for some reason it's completely detached from what he initially told commanded of us so it's like the more consistent position it seems to me is that if killing your neighbor or killing your enemy is ultimately hateful, but loving them is the ultimate of want, uh, I guess, of wanting, wanting their demise, then God would necessarily have to be the same thing. And if you don't say that, then it just makes it, it makes it really difficult for me to, to, to see what love actually is and what, mercy and what grace actually is if god is just completely and wholly detached from the moral from the moral and from the moral standards that he himself applied to us so it just makes it really difficult to see to understand and to notice and to discern what love and what grace and what mercy is if god literally can do what he said we can't do and it not be hate and it not be hateful and it not be hatred. So it makes it really difficult for me to even remotely see or understand who God is 
if what he told if he if what he commands for us is something that he's not necessarily um beholden to to a certain extent all right we'll uh we'll have a a little guest here another one <laughs> for for a little bit longer <laughs> that's fine that's okay with me yeah so yeah i you know to what you were saying um i'm i'm extremely sympathetic uh to universalism it's hard for me to get there um, I mean, I know there are ways that you can work the text, but um, what started to con- convince me that it's acceptable um, is uh, I was reading Gregory Nyssa's uh, On the Soul and the Resurrection or something to that extent. Mm-hmm. And I read something and I was like, he sounds like a universalist, but he can't be because he's a Christian. You know, he, he's a, he's a like, uh, what are the church fathers, like a really uh, important guy. And, you know, you come to discover oh, this, this tradition that I've been handed is great, it's valuable, but uh, we leave out so much of, uh, you know, the anti-Nicene and, and um, the early church, uh, even, mm-hmm. you know, post-Constantinian, which, which Nyssa was. And so that, that made me do a little bit of research and, and understanding that, okay, even if I'm not a universalist, like, I love universalists. I, I love the, the passion that they have, the love that they have for people. Um, mm-hmm you know, that aspect of, of God. Um, and then reading David Bentley Hart, uh, his book that all shall be saved was, man, that is, that is, uh, philosophically really rich, uh, for universalism and theologically. I don't, uh, when, when it comes to that, the first meditation is, I mean, even the fourth, even the fourth meditation on the rational will, I've read that book almost, I, I think I've read the book 10 times since it came out. And the first meditation, I think it's the most, I guess, undefeatable argument for universalism that I've ever, that I've ever come across. I don't think, I don't, I've, you know, you know I've read people who critiqued the book and who critiqued, you know, who critiqued the, critique David, but at, at the end of the day, I've never really heard a sufficient answer to his first meditation about um, about about uh, creatio ex nihilo, ex nihilo about wh- who God would be if he, I guess, if he um, if he allowed for the kind of world to exist that most Christians tend to believe in, and. I read that first chapter. I read the first, the first meditation, and I was like, "Okay, well, if I was on the fence before, I'm not now." You know, so that that is a powerful, it's a powerful argument, in my opinion, specifically the first meditation. Yeah. It's, a, it's a great book. Um, so, speaking of Hart, he is uh, Eastern Orthodox. Yes, and um, I know that you had you had toyed around with Orthodoxy for a bit. Um, and you know, before coming to Romania, I, I did a bit of research into Eastern Orthodoxy and, um, there, there are a lot of things that I really like about it. Uh, in particular, um, they do a really good job of bringing in the senses, you know, the smells, the sights and, and incorporating the whole person, um, and, and doing the same thing with Jesus. You know, it's not just like my Protestant background, it's, very transactional death, burial, resurrection, you know, he paid my debts. Uh, but there's, 
there's not really a true emphasis on on the life of Christ. And so there's a there's a lot I really appreciate about orthodoxy with their rituals and and things that just really ground you. Um, but at the same time, uh, I recognize and and I mean like this is prime example over here in Romania, right next to Ukraine and um, and Russia, right orthodox orthodox uh, heavy places. And you know you've got um, the the patriarchs who are sanctioning the war in in Russia, and and you've just got the sacralism that's just embedded into so much of orthodoxy. And it's interesting because you know the the things that I think the orthodox do very good to to kind of get you involved and incorporate you with their rituals. You see the state doing the exact same sorts of things. So I don't know if you have any insight from from the time that you're toying around with orthodoxy in terms of you know sacralism, how the state uses religious sorts of things or co-opts religion. Um, but I'd, I'd love any insight you have uh, into that since you love heart, you've toyed around with orthodoxy, but you're also not a statist and um, you recognize the problems of of merging government and religion. Yeah, I, you know, um, you already you already brought him up, but Brad Jerzak, he's also um, an Eastern Orthodox uh, Christian, and I mean, honestly, both of him, both of them, at least talking to Brad, he made me more he made me more sympathetic to it. Um, specifically, when, when specifically when it comes to Hart, Hart is not an anarchist. You know, he he's a statist, but um, specifically when it came to Brad, because of his theology which seemed more true and more inviting to me. It almost like shocked me that he was Orthodox, but he made me, he made me become sympathetic to it. And so obviously I I was toying around with Orthodoxy and I was about to, I was literally going, attending an Orthodox, an Orthodox church at that point. And I loved it. You know, like you said, it incorporates all of the senses it incorporates smells feels hearing it everything is beautifully painted on the walls and you have candles and it's beautiful it's a beautiful experience and it's actually outside of my own um outside of my own comfort zone because you know i've i grew up and i was raised protestant so that's pretty much all i ever knew and with protestants you Specifically, when it came to the churches that I was in, it's more. It looks more like a concert than, I guess, than a than a temple, you know. But specifically, when it come when it came to orthodoxy, one of the main reasons why I sort of jettisoned that pursuit, for at least for now, is that um, one, I saw a lot of the statism that was inherent in a lot of, um, and a lot of priests and a lot of speakers that, and even when you, when I read Orthodox history, like there's a lot of being in bed with the state that I just fundamentally found, you know, um, distasteful. And, you know, I even read this book, is about, I, I guess, I actually think he was a Protestant and then he converted to Orthodoxy. It's a product, um, Orthodox scholar, and he did an entire book. I think it's literally called Mere Orthodoxy, if I remember. It may not be that, but he has an entire, he devotes an entire chapter to the idea of how 
the Orthodox Church was in bed with um with the state in whatever periods it may have been in. And that really just turned me off. Can you know like I literally cannot stand politics. I cannot stand the government. I I I don't I think hate is probably a too strong of a word, but like if the government collapses tomorrow, like I'd be that would be my birthday gift for the you know for the rest of the you know for the rest of the year. But specifically when it comes to ortho to the orthodox, one of the things that I really I really found that it does is that one people really devote their lives to well not their lives but they dev- they have a lot uh, like a strong devotion to their priests almost more um, i would even say more strong more stronger one more strongly than protestants have to their pastors and when it comes to that i just began to see so many priests coming out in support of statism whether it be on the right or the left right and that would just turn me off because I would just realize that maybe um, they're basically doing the same thing that turned me off to a lot of Protestant, to a lot of Protestant uh, pastors and a lot of Protestant denominations. They are being used by, they're being used by the government to do these, you know, to do these presidential prayer breakfasts and all this different type of stuff. And specifically when it came to Orthodox priests and ortho, you know, and, and, you know, Orthodox Christians who, I guess, hold sway among the Orthodox population, I would just see that they work, they're kind of doing the same thing with, um, with the government, whether it may not be necessarily in, you know, in America, because it's not really a big population of Orthodox Christians in America, but specifically like overseas, especially in like Russia, like you have Orthodox priests, you have arch, you have archbishops, you have these all these people and they are literally shilling for shilling for the Russian government. And that just, that turns me off completely. And especially when it came to, to the parish that I was attending, um, we're basically, um, I, well, at that point it was basically, um, I forget what it's called, but it's like our, our parish is somehow connected to, the, to uh, the Russian Orthodox Church in Russia, and so basically Russians came over, and then they established the, at least to a certain extent, they established um, the American Orthodox Church, and so there's still connections. So they, there's there's a lot of connections to it, and that was something that really turned me off to at least the parish that I was going to because, you know, that's that's their authority figure. You know, like Rush, the Russian, Rush, the Russian. Uh, priesthood over there is their authority figures more more so than more so than anything over here in America, but it's really is it just really turned me off to orthodoxy in, to a certain extent because like there's not much I can, I think I think I can count on on my left hand and just use one finger how many orthodox uh, libertarians or anarchists that I've ever met. And the point is, is that they are extremely okay with the idea of using government to, to do, to bring about whatever they feel like they need to bring about. And even there's this, um, there's another Orthodox priest named Josiah Trinum, I think. And 
fundamentally, he was talking about how, I guess, um, you know, homosexuals are 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 able to get married and all this different type of stuff, which I don't care. I don't really care about that idea. Like if, as long as as long as they don't try to force me or force anybody else to do something that they want us to do, then I don't care. They can get married. I don't care. And so the thing that really like almost like terrified me was he was talking about it. And I'm talking about it's a big parish. I think maybe almost almost a mega church looking it looks like and the just authority that he had to say that uh, marriage is solely between a man and a woman which i don't i don't disagree with but he's almost saying that it should be illegal to practice homosexual homosexual to be in a, involved in a homosexual relationship and it's like man being a libertarian and being an anarchist, I fundamentally disagree with that. And after that, I, it just sort of just being involved in certain orthodox circles, I just began to see so much of the statism just just come up. And it's almost it's I would say it's almost as worse as what you see in evangelical uh, American evangelical uh, churches. So it's almost it's almost as worse. It's almost as worse. And it's all, but it's even, but I would say it's to a certain extent, it's even worse because I've seen so many Orthodox Christians advocate for the idea of, of monarchy. Like literally there's this guy named Jay Dyer on YouTube. He's an Orthodox Christian, pretty big. And he has a, he has a substantial following, and he fundamentally advocates for the idea that we should have kings. And you see that a lot with a lot of Orthodox Christians, and that turns me off so much. Like it, like there's the the advocation of statism in Orthodox Christianity just completely turned me away. That that's that's not the fundamental reason why um, I kind of like put that on hold. But it fundamentally turned me away from orthodoxy because of the statism that is inherent within not only their theology, but is also inherent within the way that they within the way that they, um, I guess, um, within the way that they practice Christianity. They're they are almost more bold than uh, Protestant Christians when it comes to advocating more tyrannical, more tyrannical control over the populace. They literally advocate monarchy. At least a lot of them do. And that is something that I fundamentally just said, okay, I'm, that was overwhelming. And I was like, okay, I'm gonna have to push back a little bit and I'm gonna have to, you know, regroup. And then maybe further on in the future, I'll go ahead and re, you know, just maybe think about it again. But other than that, I was completely turned off from Orthodox Christianity. Yeah. Yeah, I understand that. So, um, last question here. You know, I I don't see, I haven't seen uh, very many black anarchists. You know, I'm yeah. sure I'm sure they exist. Um, and so, I, I don't know all the reasons for that, but m- the sense that I have is that, um, you know, y- you hear a lot of. Um, uh, 
of black people talking and in terms of politics, they talk about how, you know, like anarchism or non-participation, you know, if, if I'm going to refuse to vote, um, cause I, I just don't like any of the candidates, a lot of them will say, well, you know, that's, that's a privilege that you have because there's nothing that really, really impacts you that much. Um, and so it, it, it's hard for me to really speak into that because yeah, I mean, I understand if, if, uh, you know, my group was oppressed for a long, long time and there's still hangovers of that and still in effects and impacts and still legislation and the justice system and all that kind of stuff. It's easy for me to say, I'm just not going to participate. But, uh, you know, I've heard a, a lot of black political activists saying, um, that's, that's irresponsible and that's, that's unjust to refuse participation to help. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm sure you've probably dealt with a whole lot more pushback, um, from people, but I'd love, I'd love to know, you know, have you, have you heard those accusations? And then secondly, how do you, how do you respond to that? Um, well, I, I guess I would, I mean, that, that's kind of the reason why I, I cited, um, well, I didn't cite, I just basically brought up, um, Walter E. Williams, Thomas Soul, all of those black intellectuals who they're not liberal and they're not progressive and they don't necessarily buy into the idea, um, that I guess, um, racism is so detrimental to black people nowadays and for me i wouldn't i wouldn't deny the idea that systemic racism exists i wouldn't deny the idea that um i guess that racism is a bad thing and that racism um that you know racism has harmed and has done um systematic has done systematic harm to black people and maybe even like maybe even now i'm more so of a person who thinks that you just have to deal with the fact that racism isn't going anywhere one two deal with the fact that i think that that black society that the black culture and especially for me just as a black man we can do so much more to contribute to our own to our own well-being than what a lot of these activists tend to say that we can, you know, because they attribute so much of it to, you know, to the inequities that are caused by, by racism and, and things like that. I think for me, um, I don't see any solutions to, um, I guess, basically engaging in, in politics at all because I feel like I've, I, I feel like I have I've, I've gotten a good enough history lesson from what the government has done to people that look like me that makes me that turns me off to ever thinking that that course of action like voting and 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 being in politics it's just scarred me too much to ever think that I would ever need to utilize that path towards, I guess, liberation. And so for me, I look at government, I look at government as fundamentally a gun. 
which, which is fundamentally what it is. And looking at what, you know, my grandmother, my grandmother, she grew up, she grew up in the fifties. She was born in the fifties. So she went, she went and experienced Jim Crow. Right. So it's not like I'm completely turned off to the idea that racism is horrible. My, my grandmother is still alive. Jim Crow wasn't that long ago. I mean, just looking at the, looking at the span of how long America has been here. So I wholly understand that, um, there are still racial inequities that that occur in this country. That there's still things that that can be done and that can be that can be improved. I just don't think that utilizing the same gun that was used to oppress us in the past is a good is a good enough solution because you still have there's the gun is still there. Like who's to say? Because you know when it comes to these kinds of people, they'll say that yo. Um, the culture is still systemically racist. So they're saying that there's still a, there's still a bulk of the American populace that's still racist. And they'll say, Hey, politicians, police officers, there's still a lot of them who are still benefiting from and even perpetuating the idea that America is systemically racist. Why would I want to give them the gun to, to potentially do what you say it's doing again? So for me, I'm more I'm I'm more so of a person who I think I th- I just think my I just think my salute not necessarily my solution but my position whether it be whether it be a passive solution or whether it be a passive position or not I just think that my position in the end will cause less harm than their positions will because either way it goes you acknowledge that this you acknowledge that the government has done and perpetuated all of these inequities and have perpetuated all of these tyrannical uh tyrannical things on us and then you say at the other side of your mouth you say all right let's take that same gun and make with it what we do and make with it what we would want to what we would want to happen but then you simultaneously say we're still dealing with um, with a systemic, with a systemic, systemically racist society, and all of our institutions still involve, um, ra- still involve racism, and I just don't find that to be a very smart move. Why would you continue to legitimize the institutions that once oppressed you, and you still say the same people that are that are um, currently involved in these institutions right now are still occupying these positions? And they still have the same sentiments to a certain extent as those people did back in the day. I don't see any reason or any justification to then say we should still legitimize the same institutions because of if you don't, you're giving you're giving, you know, you're giving uh, power to the oppressors again. It's like, well, either way it goes, they still have the power whether or not. So for me, I just say. I would I would. I would say the idea that I guess being passive about politics is is irresponsible. I think utilizing the gun that you, that was used to oppress you and you are still sitting by the same people that you claim are oppressing you when they could potentially get the gun again, I think that's I think that's more irresponsible because that could lead to more 
tyrannical um to tyrannical practices in the future so it's i think it's sort of i think it's sort of it's it's, it's a very complicated issue but i think i think my i think my position makes a little bit more sense than the position that they're that they're prodding out and obviously there's been people who have come up to me and i'll tell them straight up i don't vote i never will i think that i think that I think that signals that you're legitimizing the organization that was used to, you know, that, that oppressed us in the past. And they'll say, yo, well, we need it. It's, it's, you know, it's necessary because of this or that and this or that. And it's like, I just don't, I just can't get past the idea that I'm basically getting in the same car that all of these and getting in the same car and potentially that's a bad analogy, but using the same gun, I guess, to um, get what I think get needs to be done, and potentially the next year, the people that I that I claim to be my oppressors can get the gun back. So my I think my solution would would be is to just do away with the gun. You know, just do away with the gun, and you won't have that because I think that. A, you know, a racist person, a racist person without the state, I just think is just, I, I think he's, I think he's powerless, honestly. So if you have a racist person with the state, that's potentially, that's potentially genocide. A racist, per, a racist person without the state, that's just a racist person with bad ideas. Yeah. yeah that, I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid of a racist person. I'm afraid of a racist person with a badge on them. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid of a racist person who's just sitting there. So what? So I think, I think it's just, it's just bad. It's, it's bad. It's a bad way to live to think that the same, the same institution that was used to oppress you, that you could potentially use it in a good way. I don't, I just don't think that, I just don't think it's plausible. And I think when you look at the history of the way that governments tend to do, they tend to become oppressive and they tend to become and descend into tyranny. And on top of that, so with that, and then on top of the fact that racism was literally um, uh, perpetuated by the government, I just find it extremely irrational to ever believe that it would be okay to participate in the political system. Yeah, I, I like I like those analogies, and you know, talking about the indiv- the harm an individual can do versus the harm that you know a, a, a group with power can do. And the, the, it also reminds me a lot of, you know, CRT. I I think it's a shame that there are so many people, um, in some of the groups that, that we run in, um, but then also, you know, the conservatives who, who supposedly want to limit the state, you know, they're very anti CRT. And I'm like, you guys are crazy. You should be all about CRT because, not only does it make accurate observations, okay, I don't like their solutions, which is why I think so many people don't like CRT because it basically wants government to do stuff. But its observations are, are spot on. It's exactly what you just said. It says, hey, look, government says that they fix our problems with legislation, but what they really do is they they shift the problem to somewhere else. You know, okay, they got rid of slavery. No, there's, there's debt peonage and there's sharecropping. It's really slavery. Okay, well they they give 
they give uh, minorities the right to vote. Yeah, but then they disenfranchise them through uh, the war on drugs, right? Well, CRT makes those all those observations and they essentially say the government's worthless. It, it doesn't fix the problems. But then CRT goes on to say, so let's use the government to fix to fix this problem. Um, so I think your observations are spot on. I think it's exactly what CRT observes. It's just your solution is a, is a far better one than uh, CRT, you know, proposes. Yeah, and you, you know, because honestly, I think I would, I think I would fundamentally agree with because okay, when it specifically when it when it comes to me, like I think, I, I think white liberals. In my opinion, because honestly, I'm 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 literally not a political person. I mean, I have political views, but I don't follow politics that much. It it, it just it doesn't. I have no idea what pre, what President Biden is doing right now. I don't know, and I just never will, and I don't care. So I just so, but for me, I think that one of the, one of the things that has just made it even just made at least black people's predicament even worse is the fact that I, I honestly do believe that if, if white people had not necessarily decided to help us, I'm more of a Malcolm X kind of guy than a Martin Luther King kind of guy. I'm more of a person who's, who would say, not necessarily in a, in a, not, like, not necessarily in a defensive uh, phraseology, but I'm a more of a person who say, look, people, people, races out there don't care. Do what, do whatever you need to do. If you want to be racist, go, go be racist over there. I don't need you. I don't need your help. When it comes to people who say, who claim that they need my help, I don't need your help. I can do, I can do it myself. You know, you guys have helped enough. You're obviously, you're, your solutions obviously aren't helping. Like for me, it's always been, I, and I guess this is why I don't, I don't necessarily refer to myself as a liberal or a progressive, because I think I, I almost cringe when I see, and not necessarily saying it's a bad thing, but I just, I almost cringe when I see white people trying to like almost defend us, you know, not necessarily saying it's a bad thing. I don't get, I don't get mad, but it's more so of a realization that when white when white liberals in particular and white progressives have have like attempted to help us in the past it's all that is done is make it worse you know and for me when i hear when i hear stuff like that like yo hey look we we have white privilege or we do or whatever and i and i acknowledge that white privilege exists you know it's i don't care it's it's not really a big thing for me but one of the things that make that make it difficult for me to get on board with the idea, specifically like okay, with CRT, with CRT, fine. They make a lot of valid observations about the world and about what the government, what you know, what solutions they, what solutions might may be the best solution for us. And it's like, okay, you guys have been doing this for so long, and it doesn't work. Because fundamentally, your I guess your argumentation is proper, but your statism is getting in the way and it's hurting us. So for me, 
I can't even I can't even stomach the idea of like specifically like white liberals trying to I guess help me and help us because I just see that it doesn't it doesn't actually help anything. It really doesn't help anything. And so this is fundamentally the reason why I'll say, hey, I think the solution is put down the gun that was used to oppress us and let's work it and let's work on it ourselves. Because if you got if what you guys are saying, basically that, you know, that the white that the white population, they fundamentally don't care about where we are and, you know, and they're benefiting from the system and whatnot. It's like, okay, fine. Let's just say that that's true. I don't think it's true. I think the majority of white people in this country are, you know, are cool. You know, I don't think most, I don't think most people have, you know, negative, you know, negative views about me just because of my skin color. I think most people, I think most white people are, are loving, are lovable people. But for me, if you're going to take the idea that, you know, that we live in a society that oppresses that oppresses us because of our skin color. I don't see why you would want to exercise your right to vote when you have when you have a populace that is what six almost almost seventy percent white. But you also say the the vast majority of them are racist or they benefit from they benefit from a society they benefit from a system that is racist and they don't want to ever give up they don't want to give up their privileges it's like okay all of that has been all of the arguments that you use to to make that case like 80 90% of the time government's behind it like whether it's redlining whether you know whether it's jim crow it doesn't matter just name it all of that stuff fundamentally comes from the fact that whites in the past utilized the government to um to bark up more um bark up more inequities and inequalities right so it's like why would you i just don't get why do you insist on utilizing the state the state institution when one it all you know what it does you know what it could potentially do to us and two you know for a fact that the vast majority of people in this country are white and you also say we live in a systemic society and they benefit off of this they benefit off of the um benefit off of race off of the racism what do you expect is going to be the result of, of that type of stuff i don't i just literally don't get why more black more black people aren't at least at, at minimum libertarians and at you know and at maximum anarchists i just don't get it because it's I think the logical conclusion to the logical conclusion to looking at the history of what black America has gone, well, black society, black culture has not black culture, but black people have gone through in this country is anarchism. I say throw away the whole thing and let's and let's let's see if we can get it out the mud and do it ourselves, because I don't see the government shrinking. I see the government becoming more overreaching. And I think it inevitably could potentially go back into where it was and that is oppressing oppressing minorities because that's kind of what you guys already say anyway that's what you're supposing that's what you're supposing anyway that's why you don't want republicans and conservatives in office because you think it is going to lead to um the oppression of minorities why do you continue to subsidize and legitimize this particular institution that you think is going to well could potentially um oppress us again. I don't see why you just don't 
throw, do away with it. Just well, that's throw it, it away. That's exactly what a democracy is. It's a, it's a, a um, the oppression of a minority by a majority. Or Very maybe oppression is so. a harsh word sometimes, but I mean, sometimes it literally is, like you said. Um, well, I've got kiddos who woke up and mm. uh, I would love to continue, but uh, I enjoyed it. We'll have to yes, do sir. it again sometime. Yeah. Um, and, and I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, I ramble. I should have warned no. you before before we even started. I ramble a lot. Well, I invited you. This, this is about you getting to share your thoughts. So whatever you shared was fantastic. And uh, we can do it again sometime. Yeah, okay, I'll look forward to it. All right. I appreciate you taking the time out of your day. Yes, sir. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right. That's all for now. So peace. And because I'm a pacifist, when I say it, I mean it. podcast is a part of the Kingdom Outpost Network. Please check out the links below to find other great podcasts and content related to nonviolence and kingdom living.